Greetings from First Baptist Church in Stillwell, Oklahoma. Thank you for joining us. To view more and to get in touch, head over to our website, fbcs.us. Now, relax and enjoy your content. Well, thank you for having us today. Already done with me, okay? (laughs) Here we go, okay. (laughs) Brother Ellie is warning me, don't go too long. I'll just cut that right (laughs) there. Oh, well, goodness. For those of you who weren't here for Sunday School, my name is Dan Charland, and my family and I are missionaries to the United States. And by the way, before I continue, I just want to say that uh, the reason I'm wearing the mask and being strict on the social distancing is because my wife has an immune system deficiency. Uh, she went into septic shock several years ago and suffers from post-sepsis syndrome, very, very debilitating, weakening condition. That's why she wasn't able to make it here today. She has episodes that are worse than others. So uh, she apologizes for not being here. And the seven years almost we've been doing this is the first time I've ministered without her. So it's uh, unique and somewhat sad, but I always am blessed to be able to share God's word and the truths from history about our nation. So I am very pleased to be here with you this morning. Uh, So my wife Jennifer is not able to be here. But in September 2013, God called us out from Vermont, the most spiritually dark state in America, to begin our ministry And like Vermont, America needs a third great awakening. So we invite American Christians to give themselves fully to Christ, and we invite the lost to believe the gospel so they can be saved. To date, we've ministered in hundreds of churches all over the United States, and we've seen over 1,100 people accept Christ as their personal Savior. Many thousands of Christians have been challenged to dedicate their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause of Christ in America and beyond. Ours is a faith-based ministry. We never ask for or insist upon financial compensation for what we do. We stepped out on faith seven years ago with no monthly support and obedience to God's call. And uh, so God has blessed through his people. This is what we do full-time. When we launched our ministry, I quit my secular job, resigned for an interim pastor I held for a year and a half, and we sold our house in four days. And God has been working through us and meeting our needs ever since that time. Our primary ministry objectives are to see souls saved and Christians sold out to Christ in every area of their lives. We do this through our living history presentations. We'll be, I'll be doing the uh, Faith of Our Founding Fathers for you in just a moment. And we also have many PowerPoint presentations, and we'll be doing one of those at 2 o'clock. So those are really powerful. Uh, a lot of information in a short period of time. You're really going to want to be here. Invite your friends and family, other churches. We're not, we're not interrupting their 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock evening service to have them be here. Get people to come. This is such important information. If you're concerned about what's happening in our nation today, and I hope you are, then the things I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, and especially at 2 o'clock, are going to really give you some some powerful uh, ammunition, if you will, to go out there and and share with people to help them understand what's going on, why it's happening, and what we can do to turn things around. So that's a little bit about us. This message is called The Faith of Our Founding Fathers. And by the way, since this is an 18th century ministry, we want to be as authentic as possible. We'll be preaching for three hours this morning. <laughs> Just kidding, we'll have you out here about an hour, okay? I have, to, I have to get you out in time to eat lunch so you can come back at two, right? So there we go. So The Faith of Our Founding Fathers. Now, at its beginning, America was a Christian nation. There are many people who dispute that fact today, but the historical record is clear. It's a record we'll examine together today. We'll also see why America is no longer a Christian nation and what we can do to turn things around. You know, our enemy, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may may devour. He's been hard at work trying to destroy America since our nation's origins because we have that rich Christian heritage. We want to help you to understand that heritage today as well as to understand the nature of the battle that's being waged and help to equip you to fight that battle. So today we're going to focus on three main concepts, America's Christian foundations, why America's in danger, and how to see revival. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to present your word and these truths today. Help me to be empty of self and filled with your spirit. We pray, Lord, your hedge of protection around this place. Keep Satan and his demons at bay. Father, I pray if there's any here that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, today will be the day that they accept you. And for those who are born again, I pray today will be the day when they yield themselves fully to you. Father, bless this hour. Open the hearts and minds of all that are here to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. (laughs) 
Okay, so looking at America's Christian foundations, we'll start Colonial America. Now the first settlers on the East Coast where America began came from England, so we're going to look briefly at our English heritage. Excuse me, most of the Protestant Christians that came to America were greatly influenced by John Calvin's teachings. So it's important we understand some of their beliefs so we can place our founding fathers in the proper cultural historical context. Now, as Baptists, we don't agree with everything Calvin taught, but many of his teachings did have a positive influence which shaped the origins of America, including the total depravity of human nature. In other words, man is by nature sinful and unable to please God apart from Christ. Second, the priesthood of all believers. No intermediaries are necessary. Christ alone is sufficient. Amen. An emphasis on biblical law. I'll return to that momentarily. Limited government. While governments are ordained of God, they're also limited in their authority by God, something our government seems to have forgotten about. Amen? And as I said earlier in Sunday school, if you agree with me, say amen. Okay? Tells me two things. You're on board and you're not asleep. Okay? And as I also said earlier, if you don't agree with me, you have the right to remain silent. Okay? All right, local church government, Calvinists embraced primarily the congregational form of church government. Now, I mentioned an emphasis on biblical law. That's important for a couple of reasons. Primarily because the English common law was also based largely on the Bible, and that's what the English settlers brought with them. Now, the English common law emerged over many centuries in early England. If the uh, people in the villages had a dispute, they would take it to the person most respected in the village, which was the village priest. Fortunately, back in those days, they were still reading their Bibles. Amen. The priest would look through the Bible to see what the answer was from a biblical perspective. That's how he would judge righteously from the Bible. It would be written down. And over many hundreds of years, these hundreds and hundreds of, in essence, court precedents formed the foundation of the English common law. They, were, they added to that various uh, English documents, like in 1215, the Magna Carta, which limited the authority of King John and espoused more clearly the, the God-given rights of the English subjects. Then you have in 1628, the Petition of Rights. In 1689, the English Bill of Rights. All of these things with their origins in the Bible. This is what they brought with them. This is the English common law, which, by the way, formed the foundation for America's laws, okay? and, and, at least early on. <clears throat> now, at the time of the founding fathers, there was a man named William Blackstone, and he wrote commentaries on the laws of England, a series of commentaries on the English common law. This is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, Blackstone was a Christian a devout Christian, born-again believer. And as you read his commentaries, he's constantly referencing the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Okay? And so he was very influential. The Founding Fathers quoted from Blackstone more than any other reference but two. Can anybody guess what the number one source they quoted from was? The Word of God. Second was a philosopher named Montesquieu who advocated for the separation of power. So the English heritage that they brought over here was very much based in the Word of God. Second, they are charters. Now, charters were permissions granted by the king uh, to the colonists to establish a colony. You couldn't just hop in a boat and go. You had to go as part of a group, and it required the, the king's sanction. Now, when I taught history for many years, I told the students, you want to remember why they came. Remember the two Gs, God and gold. They were either coming to spread the gospel, or they were starting a business or expanding a business venture. Okay? Now, the earliest successful settlement uh, of the English in North America was at Jamestown in 1607, this was a business venture of the London Company. A business venture. Now, despite the fact that it was a business venture, listen to this portion of their charter. By the providence of Almighty God, to the glory of his divine majesty, in propagating the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. Imagine if Google or, or Yahoo or eBay or any of these companies had a charter like that. That would be a comparable thing. There are many other charters, and similar language can be found in them as well. In fact, all the colonies were founded on the religious precepts of Christianity with the Bible as their statute book. Now, looking at government in the colonies, the colonial constitutions all reflected the Christian beliefs of the colonists. In fact, listen to this. In order to hold public office in the original 13 colonies, you had to be a Christian. This nonsense about separation of church and state today is a perversion of the Baptist, which is a Bible doctrine of separation of church and state. Two o'clock, we're going to drill down deeply into that and explain to you how it got twisted around. You won't want to miss that. But suffice it to say that in colonial America, and these are the same people who were sent eventually to write the Constitution, separation of church and state did not mean that Christianity could not influence the state. It was just the opposite. In fact, in the original 13 colonies, again, you had to be a Christian to hold office. Listen to this oath of office 
from the colony of Delaware. I do profess faith in God the Father, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scripture of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Imagine if our politicians in Washington, D.C. had to take an oath of office like that today. 99% of them would quickly flee the nation's capital, and what a blessing that would be. We read of similar statements in the other colonies, all of which acknowledge that God had a hand in their founding. Now, looking at education in the colonies, the colonial curriculum consisted of several textbooks, with the Bible being the most widely used. The other textbooks were based on the Bible, including the New England Primer. I have a copy of that on our table if you want to take a look at it. Listen to what was taught in public schools from the Primer. The names of the Old and New Testament books of the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, an alphabet of lessons for you using the Bible to teach the alphabet, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Westminster Assembly Shorter Catechism, and John Cotton's Spiritual Milk for American Babes. Now, if my wife were with us today, she would, dress in her period costume, she would stand out front and do a recitation of some of the uh, New England primer uh, of words. Looking at law in colonial America, the Bible and English common law were the primary components of colonial America's law. This is reflected in the types of laws they had on the books. For example, the Sabbath laws. Now, when I was a little, little tyke in the early 70s, I remember that stores were still closed on Sundays. Any of you old enough to remember that? Clo- stores closed on Sundays? Three, okay. <clears throat> well, anyways, uh, I remember. And uh, we called those the blue laws in New England. Now, if you violated the Sabbath laws in the colonies, what would happen? Well, punishments range from losing provisions for a week to a public whipping to the death penalty. Blasphemy laws. If you violated the blasphemy laws in the colonies, punishments ranged from fines and imprisonment to the death penalty. So these laws show you how seriously the colonists took the Bible and Christianity. Looking at religion in the colonies, all the colonies had to some extent or other uh, Christian, Christian charters, constitutions, requirements that only Christians hold office. So over time, the common Christian beliefs they all shared resulted in a unity among the colonies. In colonial America, virtually all the people were Christians if not in terms of their personal faith, their personal salvation, then in terms of their habits and their customs and their culture. The 20th century theologian Francis Schaeffer referred to this as the Christian consensus. In America, there was a Christian consensus. In other words, although most people were were really Christians early on, even those who were not truly born again, at least in public, they acted like it. And I would argue as as a historian and a theologian that the Christian consensus in America lasted until about the 1960s, and it's been eradicated since that time. So under America's Christian foundations, we'll look at colonial America, now we'll look at the founding fathers. Generally, those who contributed to the foundational documents of our republic are considered the founding fathers. We think of the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, the latter of which, by the way, was passed by Congress to mandate the establishment of schools on the frontier for the furtherance of the Christian religion. Looking at the men behind the Declaration of Independence, 90% of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were members of a Christian denomination at a time when they were still teaching that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Looking at the men behind the Constitution, in all there were 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention at one time or another, and of those 55 delegates, nearly 100% subscribed to the belief that Jesus Christ is the savior of mankind. Now let's look at some quotes from the founding fathers. John Adams. John Adams was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, one of two signers of the Bill of Rights, judge and diplomat, and of course most famously, the second president of the United States. Listen to this quote from John Adams. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will, I will avow that I then believe and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, the President of the United States. John Dickinson, signer of the Constitution, governor of Delaware, governor of Pennsylvania, and a general during the Revolutionary War, listen to this very important quote from John Dickinson. Governments cannot give the rights essential to happiness. We claim them from a higher source, from the King of kings and Lord of all the earth. Not just a God, the King of Kings, the Lord of all the earth. And this, this quote by John, John Dickinson, this espoused a belief 
that was, that was universal among the founding fathers, that our rights do not come from government, they come from God. Okay, and where do we learn about that happening, folks? 1963, the secular humanist on the Supreme Court kicked God's word out of schools. Now, if rights come from God and we learn about it from this, but this is now removed from public education, what are they teaching our kids? I'll tell you what they're teaching our kids. They're teaching our kids that governments give us our rights. Let me ask you a question. If governments give us our rights, what can governments also do? Is it any wonder things are happening the way they are today? I could give you scores of quotes from the Founding Fathers. So under America's Christian Foundations, we looked at colonial America and the Founding Fathers. Now we'll look at the Constitution. Christian principles greatly influenced the Constitution. I'll give you just one example. The separation of powers. This was based on Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Does this verse indicate we can trust anyone else to rule over us? And knowing this, listen, knowing the sin nature of man would lead to attempts at gaining more power. The Founding Fathers set up three branches of government each guarding its own power from encroachments from the other two branches. And I would argue that as long as most Americans were Christians, that system of government was working very well. And I can tell you right now, it's not working so well anymore. Not because there's anything superior to it, absolutely not. But the problem is, is we now have wicked men ruling our nation. So under America's Christian foundations, we looked at colonial America, the founding fathers, and the Constitution. So what was the result of these Christian foundations of America. We had a nation, a Christian nation, blessed by God. Liberty in Christ led to several things. Listen, number one, great productivity. Great productivity. In less than 50 years, the United States surpassed Great Britain as the industrial giant of the world. That was unheard of in history. Progressively higher standards of living. You know, even the poorest Americans are rich compared to other people in the world. Tremendous opportunity for every individual. There were no class systems in America. You could start out a pauper, and if you worked hard, you could be president of the United States. Okay, world power status in record time, and most important of all, great contributions to world missions. I would argue as a historian and as a theologian that America has done more to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the other nations put together. This is why Satan wants to destroy our nation. So we've completed our first concept, America's Christian Foundations. Please understand we haven't even scratched the surface. I could literally teach you college-level, semester-long courses on some of these concepts and not exhaust all the information. Now on our table in the back, I please encourage you to go visit that table and read more about what we're doing. Uh, take one of our prayer cards if you didn't get one already. Sign up for our newsletter. It's, I don't mail it by snail mail. It's an e-newsletter, so you have to have email. But sign up for our newsletter every month. In fact, I'll be sending one out on the 1st. Every month I send out uh, information not only about what God is doing through our ministry, but I take excerpts from these messages and put them in the newsletter with references. So you can build a mini library of all these facts to share with lost family and friends, proving that America was indeed a Christian nation founded by Christians. Also, my wife has some colonial-style potholders back there if you'd like to make a donation. She has those available for you. So please check out our table. Now on to our second concept, why America is in danger today. And with all that's going on, this should really ring true. This should, I, I hope to see light bulbs going on over all throughout the audience because I'm going to connect some dots here. Despite our godly heritage, it's obvious that things have been very bad for America lately. I would say we are under God's hand of judgment. John Adams said, listen carefully to this quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. In other words, when most Americans were Christians governed by the laws of God, we used our liberty to worship Christ and live according to his commandments. This kept America prosperous, strong, and united. When Americans turned their backs on Christ, that same liberty became a license to sin leading us to where we are today with wickedness, violence, and divisiveness throughout the land. Consequently, the Constitution is not working so well for us anymore. Satan has used many ideologies to lead America away from Christ. We call these devilisms. In fact, we have a PowerPoint presentation called Introduction to Devilisms. Perhaps you'll have us back to do that at some point. 
For brevity's sake, we're going to look briefly at just a couple of these devilisms. Number one, relativism. Relativism. Relative truth undergirds all the other devilisms. It is the root of the corrupt tree. Relative truth is the result of man rejecting God's word as absolute truth. Absolute truth is derived from God's word and is unchangeable. A is A. Can I hear an amen? B, C, and D will never be A. What God said we can trust, the truth will never change. This is not so with relative truth. With relative truth, society or the elites in government determine good and evil, right and wrong. Truth changes over time. What is true today might not be true next year. That is why our government can declare that two men or two women can be married. Truth is what the government says it is. And this is very dangerous. Hermann Goring, Hitler's Luftwaffe commander, stated, If the Fuhrer declares that two times two is five, then two times two is five. If the government declares that marriage is between two men or two women, marriage is between two men and two women. Our government leaders are using the exact parallel relativistic thinking that the Nazis did in Nazi Germany. Once the government has exercised the power to redefine truth, the nation is on the fast track to self-destruction. For example, since Americans permitted the redefinition of a marriage to include homosexuals, we are now facing the transgender onslaught where men can call themselves women and women can call themselves men. Even birth certificates are being falsified retroactively to promote this farce. There are many cities and school districts in America that have passed so-called equality laws, and anyone who refuses to accept this new fake reality is fired. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives, is trying to pass a nationwide equality law. God's word is clear on this issue of relative truth. Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Our God is an absolute God of truth, and he hates relative truth. It is a perversion of truth and reality. And our politicians have taken it upon themselves to usurp the authority of Almighty God and his creation and to declare what truth is, and it is a non-truth. We discussed transgenderism in our presentation, Introduction to Devilisms. It's one of the most dangerous of the devilisms. The second devilism I'll cover with you today is evolutionism. <clears throat> evolutionism. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his famous work on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races and the struggle for life. This work promoted evolution as the explanation for how the world and man came into existence. Immediately, mankind embraced this view and rejected the word of God's clear explanation of creation in Genesis. Secular humanists, listen, secular humanists, that is, those who reject belief in God and suppose man to be the highest form of being, embraced Darwin's model and have been promoting it ever since. Man has worshipped himself as an idol in place of God. So why do men embrace evolution and reject the Bible? The Lord tells us in John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The principles of evolution and relative truth are behind other devilisms like communism, socialism, and Nazism. These philosophies are collectivist in nature. That is, they do not believe that individuals have any rights or value. Only the collective or the group has value, and individuals live only to support the group. If you become a problem for the group, you are simply eradicated. So with God out of the way, those with the power make the rules and declare what truth is for the collective. These ideologies were, were soundly rejected by our founding fathers 
who embraced the Bible in absolute truth, which they enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and Bill of Rights. And, and make no mistake, folks, evolutionism and Marxism existed long before the 19th century. Our founding fathers knew about these philosophies. Okay? Darwin and Marx simply put them into a form that was easier for people to digest. But the concepts were around during the Falling Fathers' Day, and they rejected collectivism, and they rejected the evolutionism, which had been around since, by the way, ancient Greece. Given the power and influence the devilism, devilisms have had on American society, the only way to turn America back to its godly heritage, listen, is for Christians to repent and sacrifice their lives for the cause of Christ in America. If we are unwilling to model our founding fathers' selflessness in this modern war for independence from Satan's tyranny, then America is lost. This takes us to our third and final concept, how to see a revival in 21st century America. As we've already shown, America was founded by godly Christians based on the absolute truth in the Bible. In fact, Patrick Henry said this, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As such, God honored the sacrifices of the Americans who fought the Revolutionary War to oppose tyranny. And by the way, read the Declaration of Independence. 27 reasons they gave for rebelling against the wicked tyranny of Great Britain. And by the way, taxation without representation was more than halfway down the list. The reason they put it first in public schools is because they're promoting a Marxist view of history. Religious liberty was one of the first reasons given. Their right to worship as they saw fit was being interfered with by the government of Great Britain. And I'll tell you something else. The motto during the Revolutionary War, you know what it was? No king but King Jesus. That was the model of the revolution. How many of your kids are being taught that in school today? After the founding fathers outlined their just causes for declaring their independence from Great Britain, they concluded with these words in the Declaration of Independence. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. If you want to help save America from the coming crisis, then you need to be willing to sacrifice your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor, as our founding fathers did. So let's take a look at each of these in turn. Pledging your life to the cause of Christ. American churches are filled with Christians who go through the motions of being Christians. They attend church every time the doors are open. They help out around the church. They tithe and give faithfully to missions. Yet it's possible to do all these things and not even be saved. Far too many Christians focus on the hoop jumping, but so few are willing to truly yield their lives fully to Christ and do all that he commands them to do. Only a yielded Christian, abiding in Christ, can bear fruit for eternity. John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. You know why American churches are doing nothing? Because Christians are not abiding in Christ. This requires self-sacrifice to Christ every day. Luke 9.23, and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I've heard it preached that your cross is different depending on who you are. Like my wife's health condition would be her cross. That's not what this is talking about, folks. In ancient Rome, if you were bearing a cross, you were on your way to die. God does not call us to die for him necessarily, but to die to self and live for him. And Christ has every right to be Lord over every area of your life. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price. By the way, before I continue, what was that price? 
What was it? The blood of Christ. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Churches in America today are powerless because Christians are powerless. Christians are powerless because they're either not doing anything for Christ, or when they do, they work in the power of the flesh without a yielded heart. As I said in Sunday school, all over the country I preach, and I know I'm preaching to people that God called to the mission field and they're not there. God called to the pastorate and they're not serving. They're doing all kinds of neat stuff around the church, though, and everybody thinks they're a great Christian. Oh, Brother Smith is always quick to help out here, and he mows the lawn, he does this. Yeah, God doesn't want him doing that. He wants him in the Philippines. Brother Smith is a phony. And if your name is Smith, by the way, I'm just, you know, don't take it personally. <laughs> My point is this, that we all are called to a specific ministry, and we're all given spiritual gifts that many Christians, because they refuse to yield their hearts, are not doing those things God's called them to do. Why? Because we're afraid of what God might have us to do. God is just, he might be just, he might call me to do something crazy like quit my job with no income coming in, sell my house, and buy a camper and live in that and travel. I mean, you don't know what crazy stuff God might have you to do. So be careful. You don't want to yield your life too much. That's what the devil says to you because you're fat and happy with your American lifestyle. Hey, I don't want to rock the boat. Second, we need to pledge our fortune to the cause of Christ. Oh, I knew he was going to get on money sooner or later, right? Well, this isn't really about money. It's about everything. Most American Christians spend the vast majority of their income on temporal things rather than investing in eternity. We're laying up treasures on earth rather than in heaven, contrary to what the Lord told us to do, by the way. Now, in your mind's eye, check your closets, your basements, your attics, your garages, your storage shed for how much wealth you have tied up in things you don't ever use and don't really need. You realize every penny invested in that stuff is God's money? What more can we do to see people at home and around the world saved if the money spent by all of us on those unimportant, unnecessary things was invested in home and foreign missions? You know, a few years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention had to recall one out of every six foreign missionaries. Did you hear about that? One out of six foreign missionaries due to a lack of funding. And I'm not picking on the Southern Baptists. You could take any Baptist sect, and I guarantee you it wouldn't be any better. But the bottom line is this. If we were faithful to Christ, we could have sent out six times as many missionaries instead of calling them back home. When some Christians fuss about whether or not tithing is a New Testament concept, they're straining at the gnat and swallowing the camel. As we've just seen, everything you have already belongs to God. The real question is, are you yielded in your life to the point that you will do with it what he wants you to do? How much does God want you to be willing to give to his work? Luke 21, 1 through 4. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God, but she of her punery or her want hath cast in all the living she had. Now let 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 me transcribe this. See the millions of dollars these guys put in here? I can do more with those two pennies than I can with those million dollars because of her heart and her sacrifice. When was the last time you were moved by the Holy Spirit to give out of your want rather than your abundance? Clearly the Lord asked us to give by faith like this. The Bible is full of examples. Could it be we've not been willing to hear the Spirit's voice? Remember earlier when I talked to you about selling my dad's rifle? At first I treated that voice like it was a mosquito. Where'd that come from? I'll share a secret with you folks. Three voices you could hear in your head. Okay? Could be your flesh. So let, let's say a missionary comes to the church and, and, and the Holy Spirit says, give this missionary $100. Or let's say that the pastor is, is, is trying to do like a, open up some kind of mission on the other side of town and the Holy Spirit leads in your heart and says, give, give $200 or $1,000. And you hear that voice. 
Okay? You know what I'm talking about. It can come from one of three places. It can come from the flesh. Now, the Bible says, from my flesh, that, that it dwelleth in me no good thing. In my flesh dwelleth no So is your flesh going to tell you to give that? No. It can come from the devil with the fiery darts. He puts the bad thoughts in your mind, right? Is the devil going to put that thought in your head? No. So what's the other voice? The Holy Spirit of God. Are you going to shoot away like a mosquito? Or are you going to step out in faith and do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do? Many, many, many are the times I've written tithe and missions checks and didn't have the money to pay the mortgage. Many times. Never has God let me down. Never. And I, you know, I, I feel good writing that check when I don't have the money to pay that bill because then I know God's going to come through with me for me some other way. And he does, and guess what? There's one of my affirmations. Stepped out in faith and paid the mortgage. Nope. Stepped out of faith and paid God. And then God paid my mortgage. Telling you folks, you trust God and step out in faith like that, he's going to do it. And that increases your faith and strengthens you. Let me share a story with you that explains biblical stewardship quite well. There was a man who died and went to heaven. And he was given a tour of all the beautiful mansions in heaven. The beauty, the magnificence, the splendor. And at the end of the tour, the tour guide took him to the outskirts of heaven, furthest from the light, and showed him a little wooden shack. And he said, the tour is over. This little shack is your mansion for eternity. And the man was astounded. What? What? You show me all these beautiful mansions in the heart of heaven, the beauty and the splendor, and then, when, then you take me to this little shack on the outskirts of heaven, furthest from the light, and you tell me that's my mansion for eternity? What's up with that? And the tour guide replied, and he said, I'm sorry, sir. It's the best we could do with what you sent ahead. We have the richest houses in the world, the nicest stuff. And when we get to heaven, we're going to have the smallest shacks. Unfortunately for us, there's not going to be a second chance. That condition is eternal. What are you investing your life's fortune? What are you investing your life's fortune in? Eternal things or temporal things? This takes us to our last, pledging your sacred honor to the cause of Christ. As Christians, we're commanded to obey Christ. In fact, if you're not truly uh, yielded to Christ and, and following him, you're not technically a disciple. You know that? You may be saved, but you're not a disciple. It's a matter, therefore, of our sacred honor that we do the thing the Lord most desires us to do. Now, obviously, that's to have a relationship with him and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the top two. But in terms of our general occupation as Christians, what is the number one thing God wants us to do? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and into Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. The last thing the Lord said to the church before he ascended into heaven, go, lead people to Christ, make disciples. Yet despite that clear command in many, many places, the whole book is about that. Despite that clear command, you know that 98% of Christians in America, 98% have never led another soul to Christ. If you owned a business and 98% of your employees were not doing their job, how long would you stay in business? I'm going to share with you right now how simple it is to give the gospel to another human being. And if you can say to me, Brother Nan, I'm one of those two percenters, man. I'm right there with you. Then great. Sit back and relax and enjoy the blessing of hearing the old, old story. For those who love it best, seem hungering and thirsting to tell it like the rest, right? Listen back, because I'm going to share the gospel with you. But if you're one of those 98 percenters who can honestly say, God knows your heart, I've never led anybody to Christ, or it's been so long I couldn't remember, then I, listen, I'm going to challenge you this morning. 
God, is not, God does not guilt Christians. He convicts Christians. There's a, dis, there's a difference. Satan wants you to feel guilty for your failure. God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He just wants you to repent. Turn around and get it right. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are one of those 98 percenters, here's my challenge to you. Write the verses down that I'm going to say to you right now. Write these verses down. Use a bulletin. Use whatever. Write it on your hand. Write these verses down because I'm going to share with you right now how to lead another soul to Christ. The number one thing God wants you to do, Christian, And if you're a person here today who has never been born again, you have never personally accepted Christ as your Savior, listen, what I'm going to share with you today is more important than anything you'll ever hear. I'm going to share with you how you could be 100% sure that you'll go to heaven when you die. What could be more important than that, amen? Wouldn't you like to know if you laid your head on your pillow tonight and, and, and died in your sleep that you'd wake up with the Lord in heaven? I'm going to share with you right now how you can be 100% sure you're going to heaven. And if you're a Christian, write these verses down. I can't emphasize that enough. This is the best part of anything I could ever preach. Because this is going to make an eternal difference for somebody. The first verse is Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Now, 40 years ago I could have said that to the man on the street and he would have understood what I I meant. But in our relativistic post-Christian society, you can't assume that. So this takes us to our second verse, 1 John 3.4. 1 John 3.4, sin is is a transgression against God's law. It's not enough we tell them they're sinners. We need for them to know what sin is. Do you know that in the Old Testament there were 613 precepts to the law? Just show, I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you have memorized those 613? And Nobody? Even the most irreligious person in America, however, has heard of the top ten. What do we call the top ten? Ten commandments. And stealing, I mean borrowing from Kirk Cameron and and, uh, Ray Comfort in the way of the master. I like to to teach people about sin in a personal way, so I like to give them the good person test. How many of you would consider yourself a pretty good person? You You got a bad church here, brother. That's a... Okay, most people, now, see, they know the answer. I'm really a horrible person, Brother Charlotte. Give them the good person test. Most people will say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Okay, well, let's look at the Ten Commandments, God's law. Let's just take three of the Ten Commandments. Number one, have you ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Come on, some of you are lying right now. What do we call somebody that tells a lie? Liar. Have you ever stolen anything before? Come on, you just admitted you were a liar a moment ago. (laughs) What do we call somebody that steals? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? That's called blasphemy. The Bible says God will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So, we've only gone through three of the Ten Commandments by already by your own profession, you've admitted you're a lying, thieving, blasphemer at heart. And I guarantee you, if we went through the rest of the Ten Commandments, you would have failed in all those as well. So I've never committed murder. No, Jesus said if you hate your brother in your heart, you're angry with your brother without reason in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. The Lord said if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. See, you don't have to, you didn't have to do the physical act. Okay, just the lusting feature. God says that's sin. So we violate all of us have violated all ten of the Ten Commandments. Now. That takes us to our third verse, because our relativistic society says, hey man, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it, right? Well, that takes us to our third verse, Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. Now, wages are something you earn, like a paycheck. 
How many of you have had a job before? Raise your hand. Good, good, most of you, all right. <laughs> Been in a few churches where nobody raised their hand. I think, oh boy, I'm in the bad demographic here, I guess. Now I know why my taxes are so high, okay. Okay, if you went to work that week and your boss said, hey, Sam, great job, but I'm just not going to pay you that week. You're, what you just did is for me. It's free. Thanks, Sam. Would that be fair? Because you are entitled to your wages. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, death in the Bible means separation. Listen, if a man's walking down the street, he drops dead of a heart attack, his soul and spirit separate from his body, we call that physical death. Physical death. The cemeteries are filled with people who have experienced physical death. But Romans 6, 23, it's not talking about physical death, folks. It's talking about spiritual death. What is that? That is separation from God forever in a place called hell. And today we even have so-called Christians denying the existence of a literal hell. Who created the universe specifically? Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, Colossians. Christ, God the Son, is the author of creation, okay? Now he talked more about hell than he did heaven. Now, I would think that the author of creation would know if there was not a real, literal hell, don't you? Not only is hell real, he talked about it more than he did heaven because he doesn't want anyone going to hell. Let me give you three quick things he said about hell. Various parts of the Bible talk about this. Mark chapter 9, for example. Hell is a place of fire. Now, the skeptic says, why would your loving God send anyone to a place of fire? Well, first of all, he doesn't send you. You choose to go. Second of all, think about this logically, because God is a creator. He's a logical God. What is fire used for? If you have iron ore or silver or gold ore in the ground, you're mining it, and you want to take it out of the ground and purify it, what do you apply to it? If there's dirty water you need to drink, what do you apply to it? What does fire do? It purifies. The problem is, if you, want, if you die in your sins... That purification process in hell will last for eternity. There'll be no end. Second, hell is the place of darkness. We read about this in the book of Jude and many other places. Have you ever been in a power outage and the lights go out and you can't even see your hand in front of your face? Isn't that, what's the first emotion that comes over you? Shout it out. Fear. It's, it's terrifying. What's the first thing you want to see? Imagine being in a place of pure darkness, knowing you will never see light again. Now again, the skeptic would, would rise up and say, ah, you Christians, your Bible is filled with contradictions. First you say it's going to be fire, and then you say it's going to be pitch black. Hey man, when I light a candle, the darkness goes away. Well, hold on. Scientists have concluded that the color of the hottest fire that could possibly burn is pitch black. Think of the black holes in our space. See, the God who created the universe wrote this book, and there are no contradictions, folks. Our knowledge may be wanting, but there are no contradictions. But the worst part of hell is not the fire, as bad as that'll be. The worst part of hell is not the darkness, as bad as that'll be. The worst part of hell is this. For the first time in your existence you will be completely and utterly separated from the presence of Almighty God. The Bible says that God is spirit. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's with you and me in this room. He's with the Chinese Christians on the other side of the planet. God is everywhere present. And listen, even the most vile, wicked person benefits from being alive because we're in God's presence. Being in God's presence gives us a sense of peace, comfort, and security we could not otherwise have. And if you die in your sins, the moment you enter hell, that presence is gone. For the first time in your existence, that presence is gone. Have you ever had an anxiety attack, fear, horror? Imagine your existence being like that forever. Listen, 
A is A. If you're apart from God, who is good, all things good, that's the natural outcome. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The second part of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has a gift for you. Listen, do you have to pay for a gift? Ladies, if your husband gets you an anniversary present and two days later you get a bill in the mail in your name, that was not a gift, okay? Don't get any ideas, guys. Now, those are the kind of light bulbs I don't want to see going on. Right? But listen, God has a gift for us. That means you don't pay for it. What is that gift? Eternal life. What is eternal life? A home in heaven with God forever. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now listen, if I had a gift here up on the altar and I said, it's yours, come get it after the service. If you neglected that gift, if you never came and took it, would that gift do you any good? No. Likewise, God's gift of eternal life, he offers it to you. He's offering it to somebody today through me. He's using me as his vessel. Thank you, Jesus. God offers you that gift. If you don't take it, he won't force it on you. You have to receive the gift. So, well, how do I receive it? Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What does that mean? Listen, sin is rebellion against God. It's shaking our fist in God's face. Amen? God says you need to turn from that hard attitude and turn to Jesus Christ and trust him to forgive you of your sins and take you to heaven. How does that work? Write this down. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, God the Father, made him God the Son. For he made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, the moment you turn from that rebellion against God and place your faith and trust in Christ to save you from your sin, listen, God takes your sin, nails it to the cross with Jesus and takes the righteousness and holiness of Christ and places it on you. That's called an imputed righteousness. It's a legal term. It means though you in and of yourself are not righteous and holy, though you are not righteous and holy, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm taking righteousness and I'm placing it on you. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's as though God covered you with a holy blanket. So now when he looks at the Christian, he who has repented of his sin and trusted Christ, he looks at the Christian, he sees the blood of Christ. He doesn't see his sin anymore. So when you die, you don't die in your sin, you die in the righteousness of Jesus. Somebody would object and say, wait a minute. It can't be that simple. There must be something I have to do. Go to church, keep the Ten Commandments, or be baptized. Something must be something I have to do. And God's word has an answer to that skeptic. The answer is no. And here's your verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When you get to heaven, Christian, the only thing you're going to boast on is the blood of Christ and his cross. In fact, write down this verse, Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. This is the verse that says, Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Our righteousness, our good, look, our good works to God are as filthy rags. Now listen. I'm going to be very graphic here with you. There are two types of rags in the Old Testament. A woman's menstrual cloths were one, and the second were the rags used to wrap the decaying skin of the leper. Now imagine you have a brand new carpet in your house. Has anybody ever had a brand new carpet? A welcome mat? Okay, you get, you get the picture, right? You get a brand new carpet, and you invite your friend over to see your brand new carpet, and your friend brings her poodle, Fifi. Some people got to bring Fifi everywhere, amen? 
and Fifi does a number all over your brand new carpet. And you're mortified. <gasps> Look what your dog just did on my carpet. Your friend says, oh, not to worry. I have a bushel basket full of used Old Testament rags. I'll sprinkle them on the stain that Fifi made. Would that satisfy you? When we come to God thinking our good works are somehow going to make up for our sins, God says, you know what, that's filthy rags. Don't go there with me. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I love to tell a story that illustrates salvation so nicely about the judge. There was a judge one day, and a young woman stood before the judge. She was guilty. It was established. She was guilty, and he was getting ready to pass sentence on the young girl. He looked at her sternly. He said, young lady, I told you if I ever saw you in my courtroom, I'd throw the book at you. Because of your crime, it's one year in prison or a $10,000 fine. I'll let you choose. This young girl, about 18 or 19 years old, didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. She heard all kinds of horror stories about prison. She was scared to death. She literally dropped to her knees, crying, almost screaming, please, Your Honor, don't send me to prison, please. I don't have the money, please. He looked at her sternly. He said, Bailiff, take her away. They grabbed that girl, kicking and screaming, put her in the prison and locked the door and walked away. Before I finish the story, let me ask you a question. Was that a just judge or an unjust judge? He was just. Was she guilty? Did he give her what the law demanded? God is a just and righteous judge. The Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. If you die in your sins apart from Christ, God will condemn you to hell because he is a just and righteous God. But the story doesn't end there, fortunately. At the end of the day, when the judge was done work, he took off his black robe and he hung it in his chambers. As he started out of the courtroom, he stopped past the clerk's office, took out his personal checkbook, and wrote a check for $10,000. He handed the check to the clerk and said, bring me the girl. The bailiff went back to the prison and unlocked the door. And he said, good news, good news. You're free, you're free. Someone else has paid your debt for you. You're free. That girl ran out of that cell. She ran up to the judge, put her arms around the judge's neck and kissed his neck and said, thank you, daddy, I love you. Because he was a just judge, he had to condemn her. But because he loved her, he paid her sin debt himself. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You owe a debt you cannot pay, so God paid a debt he did not owe. And all you need to do is be, be willing to turn from that rebellious heart attitude and place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When I share this to people, when I'm, leading, I'm trying to lead them to Christ, I'll say, do you believe what I just shared? This is the gospel. Do you believe it? And they say, yes, I believe it. I'll say, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? They say, yes, I would. I say, then you could pray a prayer like this. Listen to me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell. And I know my good works can't save me. But I believe Jesus Christ is God the Son, that he became a man and he lived a perfect life, never sinned. I believe he died on the cross and shed his blood to pay my sin debt in full. And I believe he was buried and rose again the third day, proving he is God and what he said is true. Lord, I'm sorry for my rebellion against your law. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and be my Savior. Take me to heaven someday. And I trust you to do that, Lord. And thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'll say to the person, does that prayer sound like something you'd like to say to God right now? Yes, I would. I say, okay, I'll pray. I'll lead you in that prayer. I'll, I'll say that prayer again. I'll go much more slowly so you can repeat it after me. But you can pray that prayer, and I'll lead you in that prayer, and you can be saved right now. You can trust Christ to save your soul right now. You can become a Christian, what the Bible says a Christian is. And if the person says they want to pray with me, I'll say, okay, I'll pray with you in just a moment. I want you to understand two things about that prayer. Number one, you could say that prayer a million times and still die and go to hell. Because the prayer does not save you. Your faith in Christ is what saves you. Number two, if you're already a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you don't need to say this prayer. Once you've received Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life. 
And eternal means forever. It doesn't end. God does not cast us out when we sin. So this prayer is not for the Christian. This prayer is for you, the person who's hearing my voice and saying, you know what, I have to admit, I have never personally trusted Christ. I've acted like a Christian. I've gone to church, but no, I have never actually personally done that. This prayer is for you. I'm going to lead you in that prayer right now. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you would like to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can pray right now with me. I'll lead you in that prayer. You can repeat this out loud, or you can say it in your heart to God. God hears your thoughts. But if you want to pray and ask Jesus to save you, bow your head and close your eyes with me now. Pray this prayer. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell. I know my good works cannot save me. But I believe Jesus Christ is God the Son. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. I believe he died on the cross and shed his blood to pay my sin debt in full. I believe he was buried, that he rose again the third day, proving he is God and what he said is true. Lord, I'm sorry for my rebellion against you and your law. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and be my Savior. Take me to heaven when I die. I trust you to do this. I thank you for doing this. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a while longer. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. Brother Scott. If you just prayed that prayer while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, except for the preacher, if you prayed that prayer right now, I want you to lift up your hand really high so I can see. I'm going to ask God to bless you. I'll not point you out. Don't be embarrassed. I'll not point you out. But I want you to raise your hand really high. Anybody? I see one hand. Very good. Keep your hand up. Anybody else pray that prayer? Raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. Christ died for you. This is your opportunity to, to give testimony. Anybody else? Okay. Put the hand down. Father, you saw the hand that was raised. I ask you to bless this individual. Help them to know now that they're your child. Now they, go to, they will go to heaven when they die because they've trusted you as their Savior. Move in this person's heart to read your word every day. That's how you talk to them. Move in their heart to pray every day. That's how they talk to you. I pray, Lord, that they'll make it public. They'll come to the preacher and, and, and to anybody else and say, hey, I got saved today so we can all rejoice and celebrate. I'm not going to point that person out, Lord. I'll let, I'll let you handle that in their heart, but I pray that they will make a public profession of faith because we want to rejoice with this person. Thank you for this person's salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to wrap this up really quick. I appreciate your patience. We did have somebody accept Christ today, amen? Today we've looked at three important concepts. America's Christian foundations, why America's in danger, and how to see revival. If you're still not willing to get out of your easy chair to get moving for King Jesus, then let me implore you with these words of founding father Thomas Paine from his famous pamphlet, The Crisis, published in 1776. I quote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives us gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Ultimately, our founding fathers recognized the significance of this verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, 
shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. On the Liberty Bell, our founding fathers inscribed these words from Leviticus 25.10, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. If Americans lose their liberty, it will be because God's people forsook the cause of Christ, for he alone is the author of liberty. Will you join with me and my family in pledging your lives, your fortunes, and your sacred honor to the cause of Christ in America before it's too late? It's my prayer that you will. It's my prayer I'll see you and others back here at 2 o'clock where we drill down even deeper into what's going on. You want to know about the chaos and the craziness, why it's happening? You come back at 2 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for viewing our content. If you have questions or want to get in contact, please email fbcs.us at gmail.com. Thank you.